0: How encouraging is that to celebrate the Lord in song, to see it in life change, and now we have the opportunity to open our Bibles. Take your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I highly recommend, or you have an app on your device, and find the 13th chapter of the second book of your Bible, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. This morning, I will deal with the chapter in its entirety when we find ourselves walking through historical narratives, which is the genre of the book of Exodus, we at some point began to pick up our pace, and we handle about a chapter a week, and this chapter is so good and so rich. If you are a guest, we are in the book of Exodus, walking through it, and this is our third series We dealt with, of course, the life of Moses initially and then the plagues upon Egypt and Pharaoh. And finally, Pharaoh named this series at the conclusion of the 10th plague. Pharaoh's words in Exodus 12 and 31 are on the screen where he says, and I've underlined for emphasis, up, go out from among my people. Pharaoh said, get out. And Moses and all of the Hebrews and many others with them left and began their liberation march out of 400 years of slavery and oppression and on their way to what they thought would be a brief journey to the promised land. Now, we'll find out in later chapters that that journey was extended by their own disobedience and unfaithfulness, but the Key hero to the book of Exodus is not Moses, it's not the children of Moses, it is, of course, the faithfulness of God to deliver his people. And I've been reminding you that we read Moses for a multitude of reasons biblically, but there are two themes that should be alive in our mind. The first one, of course, is that this is a true account, because here at Church at the Mill, like many, many, many other Christians all over the world, we affirm the accuracy and the authenticity of Scripture. This is not a fairy tale. It's not just an ancient epic. It's a real account of God's real people experiencing real deliverance. But there's also a deeper significance because, as is always the case in the Old Testament, we interpret it and see it through the lens of the New Testament. We know that every deliverer in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of a greater Moses, that every erasing of bondage, like what what happened among the Jews, is a foreshadow of the ultimate liberation, which is to be set free from our greatest enemy, from our greatest slave master, and that is, of course, the curse of sin and of and of death and of damnation. And so the book of Exodus sets us up to see that our God is a redeemer, He is a deliverer. But you know what else He is? He's a guide, He guides His people. How good are you at directions? Every marriage has two people one is fairly good at directions, and the other one just thinks she is. He is. They are. You all know those people that if you ever take them anywhere, they can get back there. And, and I have, plenty, I have pl- pl- plenty of weaknesses, but I, I have a pretty good sense of direction. I have some dear friends. I have some fellow staff members that I think use maps on their iPhone to go home every day. <laughs> no sense of direction whatsoever. And yet all of us have been spoiled. I mean, do you remember it was like 10 minutes ago in history that we printed directions off MapQuest? And and, and now I will drive halfway to a location before I even ask Siri Siri how to help me finish it. And she gets it right most of the time. But sometimes you find yourself where there's no cell coverage and you get a little bit worried. Your data is slow. I left my freshman year of college, or right after high school, to enter my freshman year of college to play football at a small college way out in western Oklahoma. Long story, doesn't matter. It's not important to the message, but I wanted to go. I had a 1991 F-150 pickup truck with a thousand, a hundred thousand miles on it, $50 in my pocket, and a Holman Atlas. Anybody have a home in Atlas? Anybody's grandmother have a home in Atlas? You can still buy a home in Atlas. Some of you are like me. I'm a nerd about this. I'll sit and just look at a map. I enjoy studying maps. And I did fine until I came home for Christmas. And then I left. It was a 17-hour drive. I'd drive it straight. Wouldn't even think about it. 17 hours. I left after Christmas break. And after I got through Oklahoma City, I hit a blizzard. I have no experience with a blizzard. I mean, I'm a southerner. If we get three snowflakes, we shut down, we stay at home, we tie the old hood of a pickup truck to the back of a four wheeler, and we ride down through the neighborhood in it. That's what we do. I have no experience with a blizzard, and I'm not talking about two or three inches like we get around here. I'm talking about snow banks and wind and blizzard, and it delayed my trip. In fact, it was up after midnight when I was on the back roads of Northwest Oklahoma trying to get to this college campus where I attended and played ball. I knew I was in trouble when an hour after I was supposed to arrive, I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Kansas. (laughs) I drove to the wrong state. Again, I'm at this point 19 years old. I have no cell phone. There were a few around, but I certainly couldn't afford one. I had no cell phone. I had my pickup truck. This is a Hallmark movie in the making. I'm going to end up in a ditch somewhere and live under a bridge all French fries till they find me. When we think about situations like this, you may have found yourself pretty vulnerable. It makes all the difference in the world to have some guidance. I sorted it out, and two hours later, I got to my dorm room and crashed and I called my parents the the next day and did not tell them about this. But having the right guidance makes all the difference in the world. And one of the things that's so precious about walking with the Lord is that the Scripture not only tells us but shows us that He is a God of guidance. In fact, He gives guidance so much so we ought to think about the guidance of God in our lives. I mean, I don't know anybody who's serious about their faith That doesn't agree with this statement, I want to do the will of God. I want to obey him. I I want to honor him in the major and the minor decisions. And often we use life, the metaphor of traveling. And so we say things like, On this path that I'm on, I want to take the next step that the Lord would have me. Or at this crossroads that I find myself where there appears to be several viable options, I want to make sure that I do God's will. And you may articulate it differently than me, but all of us have prayed this prayer. Again, if you're serious about your faith, Lord, guide me, show me, lead me. In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, And Jesus gives the Lord's prayer. He prays, Lord, lead us not into temptation. That speaks to this idea that we want the Father to guide us. Now, one of the things that's happening in Exodus 13 is that as the people are being delivered out from under 400 years of slavery and oppression, they're also beginning this journey where they will go with God And that journey has everything to do with their identity of being the people of God. And part of being known as a woman of God or a man of God, by default, is being someone who says, my life's not my own. I I want to follow God's will, and therefore, I need his guidance in my life. So, no sooner have they left that God begins to give them instructions and guidance. Now, chapter 13 is surely not an exhaustive treatment of all the ways that God guides us in our lives. I mean, we could go in a lot of different directions with this message, but we stick with what the text teaches. And the text really zeros in on two parts of our lives that require a great deal of guidance. And they actually relate quite beautifully to everything I said to you a few moments ago about the next-gen ministry. Let me show you what I mean. Read with me in Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, that word means set apart, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Now, don't be misled. Everything belongs to the Lord, but what he's saying is, I have a special ownership toward the firstborn. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But I have a special ownership toward the firstborn. I am claiming them as mine. And then something interesting happens that seems unrelated, and this is why we study our Bibles. We dig in if we want to learn and milk it for all of its worth. He then launches into a description of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is not the first time we've dealt with this feast. This feast closely correlated the idea of Passover because one of the parts of the Passover meal was surely the Passover lamb. But the other part of the Passover meal was the unleavened bread, which ends up looking like wafers or uh, crackers because there's no leaven. Leaven, of course, we would use the word yeast, causes the flour to Rise. My wife has decided she is growing sourdough flour in order to—or sourdough starter in order to make sourdough bread. So every day she's monitoring it on the counter. And I thought, man, our kids have been growing bacteria for years, you know. (laughs) But we're monitoring this. I can't wait for this. I'm anticipating this loaf of sourdough bread. Goodness gracious, we've worked at it a lot to get this thing to grow and to stir. And she says she feeds it and she's supposed to pour it off and she's concerned about the consistency. Well, she's doing this, of course, as a novelty, as an experiment. She enjoys these types of things from time to time. But in the ancient world, that's what you had to do. There was no way to buy self-rising flour. Yet, The process takes time in the ancient world, and there was no time. Because there was no time, because they were leaving, the moment that Pharaoh said, go, God said, don't make any yeast, make the bread unleavened. And then, every year, at the same time you were liberated, which was in the spring of the year, every year, you have a feast of unleavened bread to remind yourself How quickly God liberated you when he broke the back of Pharaoh's resistance. This is why we see in chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the, month of, in the month of Abib. Now, later it would be called Nisan. It's like the card Nisan, but with one S. It really falls on the Jewish calendar in the time of our March, April. And there is a correlation between that and our celebration of Easter because our celebration of Easter is a celebration of the resurrection. And the resurrection happened, of course, three days after the crucifixion and Jesus was crucified on the Passover. This is why Easter, of course, always is celebrated in the spring of the year. So even your modern-day practice of faith is informed by this ancient text. And the Scripture says, beginning in verse 4, Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day you shall be feast, be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And then we come to the first portion of what I'd like to teach you this morning. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And then God revisits through Moses what he says in verses 1 and verses 2. Remember, the chapter does not begin with the discussion of unleavened bread. The chapter rather begins with the discussion of consecrating the firstborn. Now, watch what happens in the text beginning in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons, you shall redeem. Now watch verse 14 again. And when in time come your son, when in time to come your sons ask, What does this mean? You shall say to him. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of the slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males, the first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes, and by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. There's a lot of directions we could go with this chapter, but in a fascinating powerful moment. Moses teaches us that God's guidance manifests itself in one of two ways. The second one will come in a moment. But the first one is that God cares and God's guidance for the parenting of his people. The common thread through this account is that Moses is making preparation for future generations to not forget the faithfulness of God. And and, and when it comes to our investment in the next generation, there are really two levels this morning. There is our personal investment in the children of our home, whether those children come into our life through birth, through foster care, through adoption, whether we've been given the opportunity, perhaps through a broken situation, to parent a nephew or a niece, Certainly, some of you in this room are not parenting your children anymore, but by situations and circumstances beyond your control, you are now parenting your grandchildren. And some of you in this room are parenting someone else's child. But in a Christian's life, there is stewardship of parenting. And when you think about parenting, this chapter really informs it in two directions. God, first of all, cares about the consecration of our children. That's what verse 1 says. Set your children apart. And more specifically, he begins focusing on the firstborn, but there's textual evidence to believe that that's not neglecting the second or the third or the fourth child. But in the ancient world, the firstborn, of course, would be the heir, a double portion, and he would oversee the family once the father passed away. And so the best way to bless the next generation in a covenant community is to make sure the first child that God gives you is ingrained in the covenant. Now, of course, this does not mean that if an oldest child of a Christian family rejects the faith, that every other sibling is destined to do that. I'm not in any way suggesting that. I am saying that the first kid you get to parent, well, it's the firstborn. And so when you consecrate and set them apart, you set the tone for how you will parent. Now, consecration is mentioned here beginning in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. So it's not just the firstborn children, it's the firstborn of all living things. Now notice the contrast. What was the 10th plague? God struck down the firstborn of every Egyptian. Every single household that was not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb endured the horrific judgment of the taking of the firstborn. But remember, God did not start this. Why was Moses' life almost taken before he ever came of age? Because a wicked Pharaoh said, we've been outnumbered. So strike down all the male babies. When you start striking at the heart of a population by killing their children, you will get God's attention. This is exactly why there is no room to claim to be a follower of Jesus and a believer of his word And defend abortion in any way. We believe life is sacred from conception because it does not belong to us. More specifically, it does not belong to the earthly father or the earthly mother. They are mere vessels that God is blessed with the miracle of life. And because that life is made in the image of God, it belongs to the Lord. And there is no modern argument. There is no scientific argument. In fact, the science simply shows that it is human, unique life from the moment of conception. And this goes all the way back to our biblical theology of understanding who owns what. When God needed to show Pharaoh who was truly the God, he said, let me show you what belongs to me. I will take all your firstborn. And then when the people of God begin to develop their identity, he says, now you're going to be different. That's one of the reasons why he lists all the places they're going to overtake, all the sites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Canaanites. He does that consistently through the book of Exodus because what he's doing is he's saying, you're going to go to this place and these places that are foreign to you. None of Moses' contemporaries had ever seen the promised land. This is 14 or 15 generations from Joseph, and I'll show you that in just a minute. So so these people have only heard of tales and legends of a land of their own. And so they are immediately cast into a world of cultures with all kinds of different worldviews. And this is why God says, you're not only going to be mine, you're going to look different and you're going to be different. And I'm going to start at where the family starts. And where does the family start? A family starts when a man and woman come together and her womb is opened the first time. So the first thing produced in the family belongs to the Lord. And then it can be consecrated and redeemed. This is interesting because unlike the animals where the firstborn were sacrificed, for humans, God doesn't want death. God is a God of life. They must be redeemed. Now, it's interesting because the book of Numbers talks about this. In the book of Numbers, when we're given a greater outflow of the law. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. So God is not asking for Israel to participate in child sacrifice. God condemns that holy, all the way through the Bible. He's saying, you'll redeem it. Animals, that's a different thing. But for my people, made in my image, you'll redeem. And of the firstborn of the unclean animals, you shall redeem. Why would a donkey need to be sacrificed for? Well, because a sacrificed lamb, its blood was poured out on the altar, but its meat was given, of course, to the priest to eat. It wasn't wasted. Parts of it was sacrificed, parts of it was eaten. You don't eat donkeys. You don't eat donkeys. It's tough to vote for, but you don't eat them. And so, the thing is, of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And so, for the unclean animal that needed to be a beast of burden, you would offer an animal that could be eaten and its blood could be shed before the Lord. Now, the fascinating thing is, is that guess who followed this law? Mary and Joseph. Do you remember in the Christmas account in Luke chapter 2? And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, where'd that come from? Exodus 13. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And guess what, the, guess what Luke quotes? As it, is written, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb. Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now wait a minute. I thought you said lambs, Pastor. I did. But later in the law, there's provision made for the poor. The poor might not be able to afford a sacrificial lamb, but they could buy two doves. They could buy two pigeons. This is how we know Jesus was born in poverty, in obscurity, because his parents qualified for the lowest level of income in temple worship. And there's something else here that God's doing. He's introducing the idea of redeeming. Remember what he tells the Corinthian believers about their salvation? For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Think about it. how did you get out of Egypt? A lamb died. Blood was shed. How will you redeem back your firstborn? An animal is sacrificed. And the firstborn is given to the Lord symbolically, spiritually, and you get to bring the child home and raise the child because a lamb took its place. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Watch it. This will blow your mind. Watch it. Whenever we forget as Christians that we've been bought by the blood of Christ and we belong to him, we then turn and begin to show our loyalty and allegiance to a world that no longer owns us. But the world never wants to liberate us. The world only wants to enslave us. That's exactly what's happening in Exodus. Lambs died so that you could be set free. So continue to sacrifice from generation to generation in order that you remind your children you belong to the Lord. In fact, when we dedicate babies here at Church of the Mill, I almost always read what Hannah prayed over Samuel. Some of you put this in your first nursery. In the book of 1 Samuel, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. And then she uses some ancient language. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So, so Hannah, and at that point Samuel, who was up in years, was brought to the temple. And Samuel, because of his prophetic office, stayed and ministered there under the prophet Eli. For a period of time as he grew, it doesn't mean that he never saw his mother, but she literally gave him to the service of the temple. And we know why Samuel would be the one ordained to choose the king of Israel who would be a foreshadow of a greater king who happened to be the firstborn son, set apart by Mary and Joseph, and beloved by his heavenly father, which is why somebody taught me when I was little. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See the gospel all the way through it. God cares that you bring your children to him and say, they're yours. That informs your parenting. Because not God only not, not only cares about consecration, he cares about their education. There's a lot of debate in our country today about the education system. And, and, and many of us, find ourselves in a position where we try to make the best decision for what our children need. One of the things the church should do is unashamedly teach Christian parents that no matter what you choose, whether a homeschool co-op, a private school, a private school connected to a particular faith, a Christian private school, or you take advantage of the public school system, whatever choice you choose. And, and in my 20 years of being a father, Laurel and I have chosen all three options at different times depending on the needs of our children. Here's the point. No matter what I choose to position my children in Monday through Friday from around 7.30 to around 3.30, I am responsible to give them the greatest education of their life, which is not calculus or physics or high-level reasoning. It is to tell them of the Lord. In fact, look at verse 8 and then look in verse 14. In verse 8, I love this language. It's in the discussion of the unleavened bread, which would come around annually, and God knows children. He anticipates children. Do you know what children do? They ask questions all the time. Am I the only dad who's turned around in my truck and said, until we get home, do not ask me any more questions. I have no answers for you. No more questions. Save them up, and when I get home and I can concentrate for a few moments and I get away from you for a little while and then I come back into your presence, you can ask me all the questions that you want for about a minute and a half. Children love to ask questions. Well, this is not new. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says these words. You shall tell of your son that day. Let's back up to verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. So, son, I'm going to tell you why we're doing this. It is because of what the Lord Did mom and dad underline this word, most important word of the chapter, for me? It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Not what He did for my religion, not what He did for old Moses, but what He did for me. Now, later in the discussion of the consecration, look at verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks, what does this mean? You shall say to him, Daddy, why are we going to the temple? Why did you take a lamb to sacrifice for me? What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and from the house of slavery. And then verses 15, 16, and 17 are just the parent recounting, this is what this is. Means This is powerful, don't miss this. One, your children absolutely need the truth of God's Word, but it better be personal. Teaching them ancient facts will not cause them to have a life-changing relationship with Christ. Ultimately, I cannot create in my children a life-changing relationship with Christ. They, and only themselves, can decide whether or not they turn in faith and repentance to Christ. But in order to put them in the best possible position to believe, it better not ever be reduced to me simply relaying what our family believes. I better tell my sons and daughters what Christ has done for me. Let me put it to you this way. Your kids need to hear information, but they need to hear of transformation too. In other words, you might not be considered in your own mind an articulate Bible scholar. I care not. But you better be able to articulate to your children how you're different today because of Jesus. How you're not the man or the woman you used to be. How his resurrection and the covenant that he completed foreshadowed in Exodus has changed the way you see the world, the way you view the world, and the trajectory of your life. And here's the deal. Your sons and daughters don't need you to be articulate. There's no command in here for you to have some sort of memorized, rudimentary set of commandments. No, no, no. He says, let me tell you what the Lord did, verse 8, for me when he set us free from Egypt. Telling your kids you're a Christian is rather obvious, telling them about how you came to faith, how you walk with the Lord, how you've repented of sin, how you struggle, how you battle, how you read the word, how you deal with struggles and doubt and anxiousness and discouragement, how you hope for heaven, how you understand suffering. Talking about these things with your children inform them that the impersonal truths they're taught in Sunday school are personal life-changing realities in your heart. I've often thought about it this way. There's six generations to lostness. I've thought about this a lot. This is how I would communicate it. First generation of Christians accept the gospel. I don't know who those were in my family. I know my grandparents were followers of Christ. So at some point in my family, somebody accepted Christ. For the first time. Then the second generation affirms the gospel. Yes, I affirm that. Not only am my mother a follower of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus. The third generation, unfortunately, just assumes, oh, well, we're all Christians. Why? Well, because mom, she raised us that way. My granddaddy was a preacher. I hear that a lot. The fourth generation becomes apathetic to it. it Doesn't really matter. It's a part of your history. The fifth generation then becomes ashamed of it. Oh, you know, that's outdated. And by the sixth generation, they're adversarial to it. I'll give you a perfect example. The first university in the United States of America is Harvard. Founded in the 1600s. There's a plaque at the gate. It's old English. It's cumbersome. I'll, I'll show it to you, but it, 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 I'll just go quick. Basically, they said we dread to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall die. Long story short, Harvard was founded to teach preachers theology so that the next generation of Christians in the colonies would know the Lord. That's what it says. That's why it was founded. It's on Harvard's website. That's why it's founded. Recently, the president of Harvard wouldn't even call out terrorism, and the current chaplain of Harvard His name is Greg Epstein. He's the chaplain of the university. He's an atheist. An atheist. He says, you can be good without God. That's how you go from accepting it to being an adversary to it. And you may say, well, that's Harvard. That's not my life. You better believe it's your life. Look at your cousins. Most of you in this room who are serious about your faith could not say that all your first cousins raised in the same family tree are all walking with Christ. Many of you can't say your siblings are walking with Christ. Now, by God's grace, every day they wake up is a day of hope. I'm not giving up on them. I'm saying I can do nothing for my cousins in this way, but God gave me six children, and I'm going to do very best I can to let them know that no matter what they choose to do with Jesus, he's real to their mama and daddy. And we love him with all of our hearts. And we believe as real as we stand here that he's coming back. And we know that he died for, and it's not just us, Jesus died for me. And that's exactly why our church has to have people who are willing to share that. Because don't you ever assume that every child in that children's wing Is coming from a home where they're hearing the gospel that way. And for those of you that have it, had it, and enjoyed it, how dare we enjoy our coffee and our cushion and not lift a finger to help the next generation know the gospel. This is the guidance of God. We also see the guidance of God in the path for his people. This is how the chapter ends, and it ends where I'll end. In fact, I'm planning. I'm not cutting anything short. I planned to just pray for you today because I knew I had a lot to say. Verse 17, when Pharaoh led the people go, he did not lead them away. God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones and you from here. And they moved from Succoth or Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire. To give them light. I love this passage because it reminds us that God guides our path first through protection. Did you notice? The shortest way from Egypt to the promised land is right along the coast. But it's inhabited by the Philistines. Let me give you the Hebrew version of Philistines. Those are some bad dudes. I mean, they're bad. They become David's number one enemy. Remember, Goliath was a Philistine. They were bad dudes. Moses and God, really God, knew Israel was not ready to go to battle. They're going to fight later, but right now, I mean, they're just slaves on the run. So he took them the long way to protect them. Now, we can't spiritualize every text, but let me tell you something. (laughs) Every time God slams a door in your life, It might very well be because he's protecting you from something that was on the other side you're not ready for. In Exodus chapter 5, I preached a message several weeks ago called Dealing with the Slam Doors. I cannot believe the people who email me because it reminded them that we love to celebrate God opening doors, but sometimes he slams doors to keep us from something we're not ready for. He leads us through protection. He also leads us through our past. Joseph said, take my bones with you. Joseph knew. Can you imagine what it would be like to carry the bones of Joseph, knowing that Joseph was the one, 14 to 15 generations ago, whose faithfulness to God saved the life of his family, which then birthed tens of thousands of Hebrews. Those surely were a sign to remind us what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Mom and dad, encourage your children to read Christian biographies. Tell them stories of faithful grandmothers. Tell them stories of faithful ministers and faithful missionaries. Talk with them about people who were imperfect but served the Lord faithfully. Our formation of a worldview is often informed by a series of stories that are real, which we can relate to. And then the final way he protects is through his presence. The pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day Most of us spend too much money on our hobbies I might have a little more hunting equipment than I need Just a little bit Probably a little bit, little bit, a little bit It's really an accumulation thing My wife will ask me How many guns do you need? That's an easy question to answer Just one more Just one more But you know of all the things in my hunting pack There are three items That have a sum total of less than $30 value that I absolutely depend on. I a roll of flagon, some reflective tape on a tack that you put in the tree, and a little old, simple, inexpensive headlamp. And here's why. When you're headed off into the woods well before daylight to go hunting, you might think you know where you're going, but the woods look completely different in the dark. And the last thing you want to do if you want to hunt is throw a spotlight everywhere. That's typically telling the deer, I'm here, you might ought to leave. And so during the day, just a few pieces of flagging lets me know where to go. And at night, I can take a small light and those bright little eyes pop up and I can follow them tree by tree right to where I want to be. This is exactly what God did. God looked at a group of people who had no GPS, no smartphone, no home in Atlas. And he said, during the day in a dry and dusty land, I want you to see a cloud of refreshing shade. And at night, I'll put before you a pillar of fire. But the powerful thing about the passage is that it does not say God created a cloud or created a pillar of fire. It said God went before them. See, that's the most powerful thing about guidance. It's not where I'm going. It's going with the Lord. Because the ultimate call of a Christian's life is not to fight for a destination you must earn. It's to be with the Lord as he guides you into his will. So you know what I want you to do? I want you to see his guidance as a great grace in your life. Even if he's working on you right now, if he has got you convicted over something, that's proof that he's not done with you. I want you to seek the grace to be guided. It's okay to pray this prayer this week. Lord, if there are areas of my life that push back against you guiding me, would you remove those? And then finally, church family, as you walk out and you see those red balloons all over those bistro tables with those willing volunteers who are ready to help you get involved I want you to think as a mother and a father and a grandmother and a grandfather and an aunt and an uncle a mentor, a coach, a friend a neighbor and a church member how do I share his guidance with the next generation in grace. Let's pray together Father as we dismiss this morning I pray if there be one here who would want to pray would want some counsel would want to bring a burden to the church, that someone might lovingly share it with them. That the moment I say amen, they would find their way to our prayer room. They would sit with someone and talk about their relationship with the Lord or any struggle in their life. If you're here today and you're listening to me pray and you have a need in your life and you would like some individual, confidential, kind attention, we would love to give that to you. But Lord, even now as we dismiss, I pray that not a single person who's doing nothing with our next gen would leave without saying I'll help I'll do something that we would knock this out not to be adequate or good but to be great and finally as a father I pray over the fathers and the mothers in this room that we would have the strength not just to tell our kids the truth of the Bible that's important but to tell them what the Lord has done for me Dismiss us by your grace and guide us in your love. And God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.